Amen. Thank you, praise team. That's beautiful. Beautiful songs and beautiful worship. Oh, how he loves us. And let me just mention, too, uh, I don't normally do this, but uh, we had one of our members yesterday have an aneurysm on the brain. His brain right now is uh, uh, not getting blood to it, and that's very critical shape. He was uh, emergency lifted to Duke Hospital. That's Keith Smith. Some of you know Keith, uh, Lori and Keith Smith. Um, so she's really in a rough way right now, and I just thought I'd have a word of prayer for him and just lift him up right now. Let's pray. Father, I just want to ask your care over Keith right now, this aneurysm, the need of blood to get into his brain. And Father, I pray you would touch him. I lift him up in your name. You love us, and I know you love him. You love that family. Lord, I just pray you'd sweep over that room. And we pray for the blood to flow to his brain, that he could regain semblance of life. And so, Lord, I lift him up to you. I pray your presence and your peace over Lori and the family. I commit him to you right now, and I lay him at your feet. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I know they would certainly appreciate your prayers for the family at this time. It's very critical right now. Uh, they were at a restaurant yesterday and had the aneurysm, and so they rushed them right to Rocky. They were at the Rocky Mountain Hospital, and then they uh, transported them over to um, Duke. But I appreciate your prayers for that in the days ahead. All right, if you take your Bibles to Mark chapter 13 this morning, Mark chapter 13, I'm doing a message today entitled The Final... Middle Eastern Peace Treaty. Now, I can't think of a better time to do this message with everything that's going on in Israel right now and all of the problems that Israel is facing with Hamas, with the Arab countries that are behind a lot of the problems that uh, Israel does have. And so I think it's a very timely message. I know some of you maybe aren't into prophetic messages. Matter of fact, I'm beginning a series in the book of Revelation here in the near distant future. And um, a lot of people seem to have an interest right now. So I'm going to just preach it from Mark chapter 13 rather than trying to do everything uh, about prophecy. I just want to focus on what Mark's intent here is because we're just going through the book of Mark verse by verse. And so stand with me now. We're going to read Mark 13 verses 14 to 23. Mark 13, verses 14 to 23. Follow along now as I read. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and the one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that you may not happen, it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. For the sake, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. You may be seated. An absolutely amazing portion of Scripture. By the way, um, the New American Standard. I use the New American Standard in this service. They just put out a new Bible in 2022 called the Legacy Standard Bible. And so it's an update to the New American. And so I just read from that today. I'm probably going to start using this moving forward. Uh, it's just been updated in some really kind of cool ways that maybe wouldn't, you wouldn't notice when you read it. But uh, this is the translation I've been using from the pulpit. So I'm going to continue using New American. But this is the newest one for uh, 2022. So... All right, the final Middle Eastern Peace Treaty. Historically, Jerusalem is ground zero for turmoil. It is ground zero for turmoil. It contains the most contested 38 acres on the globe. The most contested 38 acres on the globe. It has been captured 44 times in its history. 44 times. Just by putting that into comparison to today, Kernersville has never been captured. It is the most lusted after piece of real estate in the world. The conflict between the Arabs the Muslim Arabs and the Jewish Israelis has gone on for centuries. As you think through their history, Israeli history, it is absolutely amazing. The hundreds of wars before they became a nation state in 1948, the hundreds of wars and hundreds of treaties and oppression back before the Ottoman Empire and back before Jesus Christ was even born, they have been in conflicts and battles and wars and treaties. The nation became a nation state in 1948 on May 14th. Eleven minutes after declaring themselves as a free nation state, the United States, Harry Truman, the President of the United States, agreed and put his sanction upon Israel as a nation state. The next day, though, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Arab countries, now called the Palestinian Authority and includes the Hamas and the Hezbollah, um, immediately went to war. They declared war against Israel the day after they declared themselves a nation state. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all the countries that surrounded them that were Arab nations went to war with them and all of those Arab nations were defeated in a relatively short amount of time in their declaration of war. Israel was able to hold back Arab forces against them. That was in 1948. The next key notable war was in 1967 called the Six-Day War. It was a battle that was preempting uh, the Arab nations, in this case, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and Jordan, from invading. They had built a huge buildup around Israel. And um, at that particular time, um, Moshe Dayan, their general at that time, had a patch over his eye. He had lost his left eye over a French artillery that 
took out his eye, damaged his skull, and he was not able to wear a glass eye, so they put a patch eye on him, and he was one of their generals, and within six days, which is unheard of because that would be unparalleled in terms of the length of wars, he was able to lightning fast end the conflict in six days by preempting a strike against these four Arab nations. He did it in six days. It's absolutely amazing to read some of the stories of the Six-Day War. Some said if he didn't have a patch on his eye, he'd have done it in three days. <laughs> in 1973, another key war for them was the Yom Kippur War, uh, where Syria and Egypt attacked them. Egypt came in from um, the south to the north side there, and Syria came into the Golan Heights and set up attack against them. Israel had at that particular time in 1973 100 tanks that were deployed to the Golan Heights. Uh, Syria had 500 tanks. In four days, Israel was reduced to three tanks, and Syria had 150 tanks. It looked like they were doomed at the Yom Kippur War, but inexplicably, that morning on the fourth day, the 9th Division General of Syria, who was running those forces of those tanks, ordered every one of those tanks to turn around and head back to Syria. Inexplicably, they had, would have won that war, but they turned around. The Mossad were able to interrogate the 9th Division General and ask him the question, why did you turn around when you had us right where you wanted us? And I quote, here's what he said to the Israeli intelligence called the Mossad. He said, I would like to see you try and cross the Syrian missile lines while you see a host of white angels standing right on the missile lines and a white hand from heaven telling you to stop right there and move no further. Needless to say, I stopped right then and there. <laughs> that's an amazing, that's a direct quote. I'm not making that up, okay? It is God who called Israel into existence. It is God who will ultimately protect her and bring her to a glorious future. That's what the Bible declares. Now, as I share with you this message that I have with you today, I find myself burdened on many fronts about what I want to say to you today, but I find it fascinating to see how God has literally protected Israel through her journey and how he will deal with Israel again during the tribulation period. This portion of Scripture, as revealed in the book of Mark, is very key to understanding that. What the disciples were interested in Mark 13 is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And number two, what is the end, or when is the kingdom of God going to come? That was the thing on their mind. They wanted to know the future, and so they asked Jesus that. Just like many of you want to know the future, uh, and that's why I always continue to come back to Revelation. I think I'm on my third study of the book of Revelation on a Wednesday or a Sunday night, and I'm going to come back to that in the near future because there's always an interest in that, and it always provokes certain things in us as people that want to know the future. And so God, Jesus, in this particular case, gives an exactly accurate prediction of the future because he's God. And here's Jesus' answer, and this is a general answer, and then I'll get into it more specifically. In other words, what he's going to tell his disciples is there is no immediate hope for a better world. 
And it's important you hear that because you need to know the truth about the future. There is no immediate hope for a better world, and the world is not getting better. It's getting more scary. It's getting more threatening. It's getting more dangerous. It's getting more deadly, and it's getting more hopeless. Aren't you glad you came today? Because I'm not uh, into eschatology as many preachers are, but I do find it's necessary to teach it and necessary for you to understand we are not headed for utopia. And I believe with all my heart, world peace will be the greatest deception politicians offer to this world. A hope for world peace. It's in all the literature. It's in all of their sayings. We just want it to be a more peace. And it's getting worse not better, even though that will be the ultimate deception in the tribulation period, that there will be world peace. It will be a front for the true deception that will occur. Why is it not happening? You have to understand the deeper intent of the Scripture. The world and its inhabitants are under the curse of sin. That's why it's really happening. Man is corrupt, and he corrupts everything around him. The world advances scientifically. We advance educationally. We advance technologically, but we do not advance morally or spiritually. And yet, it is all going exactly as Jesus predicted. It is going exactly as Jesus predicted. All of these conflicts we see in the Middle East are on purpose. There is no accident. That is the greatest piece of land, 38 acres in Jerusalem, that is being fought over and has been and will be always fought over for all time. This is far bigger than just people. It is a cosmic, spiritual, invisible war that you and I don't all understand. But yet, it is going as Jesus predicted. In verses 1 to 13, we covered those. We're not going to go back over them except to say, don't be fooled by the signs of today. That's what I taught you two Sundays ago. Don't be fooled by the signs. of. There is not one more sign needed for the rapture of the church to occur. Not one more sign is needed. There are all kinds of signs in the tribulation, but not for the rapture of the church. You see these earthquakes, you see famines, you see wars in Israel, you see peace treaties made, you see broken treaties. All of these, hear it carefully, I'm going to say it again, are not signals of the end. That's what Jesus said right out of the Word. We'll not go back into that right now. Listen to that message if you weren't able to hear it. It is a sign the world is slowly decaying. That's what these signs are today. The world is slowly decaying and we are in the same birth pangs we were in since the creation of the world. Romans 8.22. The birth pangs have not changed from the beginning of creation and sin coming into the world to today. You are not in the birth pangs or even close to the birth pangs of the tribulation. The first half of the birth pangs of the tribulation will be very severe. Today we focus on verse 14 to 23. The specific event is referred to in verse 19. He calls it, for in those days will be a time of tribulation. There it is, that phrase, a time of tribulation. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. That's 
an important thing to hear. There has never been a time of tribulation that has occurred in the past or will occur after the tribulation. That's what the Bible says right there. Very important you get that. Um, the tribulation will be worse than anything that has ever happened in time. It was worse, it will be worse than AD 70. It will be worse than World War I. It will be worse than World War II. And let this sink in now, okay? It will be worse than the flood. The flood is probably the most catastrophic event that has ever happened in history. And the Bible says this event will be worse than the flood. That's, that's hard to just fathom. That's what that verse is saying. So I want you to understand that all the world was drowned except for eight people and the animals that were taken on the ark. And the Bible says the tribulation will be worse. It's hard to fathom. The tribulation is a, serious a series of cataclysmic events that have no parallel to anything in the past and no parallel to anything that will ever be. The first half will be terrible birth pains. Worse than any birth pains we've known in this world now. It'll be terrible birth pains. The second half of the trib will be excruciating birth pains. Okay, let me jump in now. Daniel, the book of Daniel. Daniel 9 says it is a seven-year period called the 70th week of Daniel. There will be deadly destruction. Satan will reign freely. Hordes of demons will be set free. Disaster will be everywhere. Persecution, damage, and death. Satan will make himself to be God. He will have an antichrist, and he will have a false prophet. That is his counterfeit to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of the anti-Trinity will be the prophet. The antichrist will be the Son of God, counterfeit, and Satan himself will be God, trying to mimic God himself. So there's always a counterfeit with Jesus Christ, uh, uh, with Satan, and the counterfeit is always around whatever God has done, he is counterfeiting. And so in this last week, the 70th week of, of Daniel, he will dominate the world with powers aided by demon, demons and men. Yet here's the thing you need to understand. Actually, God is behind it all, because it is his judgment on the world, Revelation 6 to 19. It is his judgment on the world. You say, man, he's really getting back at us. He has seen what sin does to a world. That's what he's showing you in tribulation. But he is also showing his grace. He is showing his grace because he's giving little tastes of hell so that if you'll repent, you don't have to go there forever. That's really why the tribulation is in effect. People get a chance to see how messed up things are and a little taste of hell on earth so they don't have to go there. And so it's a warning. It's not only his judgment, but it is his grace to say, now's the, now's the final time to repent. Now, I believe the Bible teaches the church will be raptured out before that time. I believe we're kept from the wrath to come. Some people don't believe that. They're mid-chippers, as I said. They believe that we're going to go through the first half and then we're taken out at the middle of the tribulation because we don't go into what they call the great tribulation. 
And so we're taken out for the last three and a half years. There are some that are post-chippers, and they believe that in essence, they go through, you have to go through the whole tribulation, and then Jesus Christ comes, returns, you get caught up into the air at that point, and then you come back right away, right back down uh, to have the battle of Armageddon. Now, I am a pre-tribber, okay? I pre-believe in a pre rapture to the tribulation period. I believe we're taken and delivered from the wrath to come. When true hell breaks loose on earth, I want you to understand this, there will still be a gospel witness. And this is an amazing thing to think about. Even though all this stuff is going on on the earth, and I don't have time to go into all that, all this stuff is going on on the earth, the gospel will still be preached. There'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will preach for seven years during the tribulation. There'll be two witnesses that come back to life. I believe that's Moses and Elijah, but I can't prove that here in the time here. But I believe there'll be these two witnesses that will preach. And then the Bible says in Revelation 11, which is absolutely amazing, there's an angel that goes across from sky to sky proclaiming the everlasting gospel. That's got to be a sight right there. I'd get saved on that one alone. But there is going to be a witness that goes on, and many, many people will get saved during the tribulation period because the Bible says they will be saved from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Now, the Bible also teaches that one-third of Israel will be saved. Two-thirds of Israel will be judged and condemned for their lack of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. The greatest shortest revival in any other period of time in human history is the tribulation period. It is the greatest, shortest period of time of any other time in human history where that many people got saved. Now, the question today is, how do we know when it is all in? How do we know it's all on and going on? How will people know for certain they are in the tribulation? That's the question I'm going to answer today in three simple statements here, okay? How do I know for certain when they are in the tribulation? Number one, understand the key event. Understand the key event. He says in verse 14, here's the key event. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand that is it. Okay, stop right there. That is it. Now he's going to tell you what to understand, but he's also saying understand that when the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be occurs, you're in the trib. You're in the tribulation. Now, he says, let the reader understand. Why does he say that? Because this is not for the disciples. If you have a red letter edition, by the way, that's not in red. Mark wrote that little statement, let the reader understand. Jesus did not say that. So Mark threw it in for his readers because it really wasn't for the disciples to hear that. It was for future generations to hear that, you and I, and also those that will be in the tribulation period. And so this will be used in the latter days for sure. And so this is not for the disciples because the book was written in 58 AD by Mark. It's for future readers, and it will happen, and they will read it for themselves as we're reading it today. Now he says, look for the abomination of desolation. What does that mean? Let me define the word abomination for you so you understand that. It means blasphemous, detestable, abhorrent to God, sacrilegious, and irreverent. It implies, every time you study it in the Old Testament, it implies immorality, idolatry, and pagan ritual. What's desolation mean? To destroy 
or devastate. So if you put the two together, anything that blasphemes God destroys and therefore is hated by God. It's hated by God. Blasphemy occurs, the Bible says, where it should not be. Now we know from Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, it occurs in the holy place. And I'll come to that, back to that in just a minute. So let me kind of jump in and get you some direction here, okay? Daniel 9.27 calls the person who does this the prince who is to come. Revelation 13 calls this person the Antichrist. He dominates the world. He has an amazing healing power, and he requires absolute obedience to him. Daniel says what he will do at the abomination of desolation to understand this, the first thing he will do is he will make a peace covenant or a peace treaty for seven years with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation period. In other words, he will go to Israel and he will negotiate a peace deal where they can return to temple worship and they can begin to worship God as they have always wanted to on their altars. Now, you have to understand, that assumes, that assumes a third temple has to be built. And I don't know if you've ever studied this, but the institute of the temple, the temple institute, has all the furniture ready to go. They're ready to build the temple, and all they need, I don't know if you know this, but all they need is a red heifer that has a perfect strand of red. They haven't been able to produce a red heifer yet that has no white strands in it at all because if it has any white strands it cannot be used in the sacrifice so they're still working on the red heifer and they're ready to build the building they're ready to build the temple so it assumes the third temple here daniel says this antichrist this this uh, prince will garner a covenant for seven years and allow temple worship to be restored for jerusalem it will be the final Middle Eastern peace treaty forever, forever. Now, I just want to show you a summary of everything I just said in a little chart so you can see it. All I really want you to focus on in this chart is the word one week or the 70th week of Daniel. So as you see that chart, bring that up and let them see that. And you can see that that one week period at the it's seven years. A week in Hebrew is seven years. All right, and so the Antichrist makes a treaty at the beginning of the tribulation. We don't know when that is. In the middle, he breaks the treaty, and that is how you know you're in the tribulation. The breaking of the treaty is what God focuses on. In the middle of the trib, he will break his covenant. He will attack Israel, and he will massacre the Jews. The Antichrist will set up his own throne. He will go into the temple and declare himself to be God, which will be Satan. That's when you know you're in the tribulation. Now, a lot of people think, well, you'll know you're in the tribulation because all these Christians will be raptured out. Absolutely not. You'll wonder, but you won't know. You'll think to yourself, wow, this huge peace treaty's been made. They've been making peace treaties for hundreds of years with Israel and broken every one of them. So you won't, still won't know if you're in the tribulation. You won't know you're in the tribulation till you've been in it three and a half years. And then when you see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist, Satan, sending his key man into the temple of Israel, desecrating it, and setting up to say he is God, that's when you know. 
That's when you know. You don't know even for the first three and a half years for sure. You're thinking this is really a mess. Really, some awful things are going on, but you don't really know until you see that and God says you mark that down. That is the defining point of the key event for knowing you're in the tribulation period. Now, I did a little study this week on Islamic eschatology. All right, I've never done this in all my life because it's very hard sometimes to figure out. But they have a Mahdi, the 12th Imam, that is supposed to be Christ, their Messiah. Okay, let me give you a definition of the Mahdi. A descendant of Muhammad who will establish peace and justice and redeem Islam. So you understand this. The Mahdi is the Islamic Antichrist. It's in their authoritative literature. The Mahdi will set up his throne and demand Islamic rule in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. That's in their literature today. He will be aided and abetted by the prophet, according to their Islamic literature, and his name will be Isha. That's Aramaic for Jesus. And their Jesus will declare, you were wrong about me all the time. Jesus will say, I didn't die on a cross. I didn't rise to pay for your sins. I am a radical Muslim. And he will point all to the Mahdi. And if you won't worship, you will be massacred. That's in their literature. I'm not trying to make anything up here. That's Islamic eschatology, and I'm telling you, it's scarily close to Scripture. Scarily close to Scripture. It's very consistent to Scripture. Their Messiah is truly the Antichrist, and their Antichrist will come and say, He is the real Jesus, the Son of God, and it will be a complete reversal of the Bible. He will establish rule in Jerusalem in the temple and place himself at the holy place in the temple where he ought not to stand. Now, I want to show you a cutout of where that would be so you know where that is. If you look in the cutout of the most holy place there in the center, you see a little priest standing right before those steps. He's in the very center of that cutout, not over to the right, but the one in the center there, a little guy there, okay? That's where the Antichrist will go before the altar of incense. He will desecrate it offer some kind of sacrifice to himself, and then he will proclaim that he is God. That's where he's going to go, in the third temple when it's rebuilt. He's going to do it in the middle of the tribulation period, aided by Jesus himself to say, that's God. That's Muslim eschatology. All right. That's where he ought not to stand. That's only for a place for the high priest. Daniel 11.31 then gives us a past picture of the future with Antiochus Epiphanes. And I want to take just a minute for this because that may not mean much to you. But Antiochus Epiphanes had, his name means God manifest, by the way, God manifest, uh, had a peace treaty with Israel. He was a Seleucid king, and on December 5th, 167 B.C., he came into Israel, he brought 250,000 soldiers, and he attacked Jerusalem. This is a rendering of the attack on Jerusalem by this Seleucid king. 
He slaughtered the Jews, and then he went into the temple, and he sacrificed pigs on the altar, which would be an absolute uh, slap in their face to bring any unclean animal like a pig into the altar. Then he spread pig's broth over everything, and blood of pigs was everywhere. Then he set up an idol to Zeus, and he banned Jewish temple worship. And let me just show you a picture of that Zeus. This, he's saying Zeus was God. He proclaimed Zeus as God. Let me just explain this to you, okay? That is not the fulfillment of Daniel 9.27 or Mark 13 or M Matthew 24 or Luke 22 or Revelation at all. But I can say this, it was predicted in Daniel 11.31 and it is a historical model of what it will be like in the middle of the tribulation. It's just a historical model, a picture in your mind. So as Antiochus went in the temple, made a sacrilege, proclaiming Zeus as the true God, so will the future Antichrist. He will come in as a peacemaker. He will break the peace. He will slaughter the Jews and establish his throne as, the ver as very God himself in the temple, and he will rule there according to Revelation chapter 13. <laughs> this is how exact the Bible is. Exactly what the Bible predicts. Now, I want to just stop for a minute because that's a lot of heavy stuff right there, okay? Have you ever known of such an evil people, armed and dangerous, who hate the Jews and hate the God of Israel, who might try to annihilate them? Well, yeah. Not too long ago, the Germans tried to do that and wiped out millions of Jews and the Muslims have been trying to do that for the past centuries to wipe out the Jews. They have vowed, the PLO, the Palestinian uh, Authority, now called the Hamas, the Hezbollah, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Algeria, Sudan, Lebanon, have all vowed. They have vowed with their lives to push Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. And yet they cannot. Because God has sovereignly protected them. So what I'm saying to you is this. This isn't a foreign concept. They've been doing this for hundreds of years and it sounds pretty normal in the world we live in today too. The Antichrist will release, unleash death on thousands and thousands of Jews and tribulation saints if they will not take the mark of the beast. Okay, number two, I've got to move on. Number two, prepare for the tremendous reaction to the key event. What's the tremendous reaction? Verse 14 says, when this happens, when you see the abomination of desolation, if you're in Judea, you must flee to the mountains. Get out of town and get to the mountains. Hide. And verse 15, and one who is on the housetop, don't even go down to get your stuff. Get out of your house and start running to the mountains. Verse 16, one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. Don't go home to get your garment. You never take your garment to work because it gets hot when you work out in the fields. So don't even go back and get that. Head from the fields right to the mountains. Get out of town. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, 17, woe to those who are pregnant. Why, why is he saying that? Because for you, young lady, when you're pregnant, you can't get there as fast. You're going to be hindered by the fact that you're pregnant, but do everything you can to get out. And if, you're, if you have a baby, the same thing. It's going, to be hard for, it's going to be harder for you, but you get out of town and you get to the mountains. That's the 
teaching of Scripture here. Uh, but pray it won't happen in winter. Again, if it was in winter, you'd be restricted by the weather, not permitting you to get up into those mountains. And so all these things are saying, get out now. Get out of town. Run for your life. Now, what's so amazing about that is that it's so flipped on the theology of the whole Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the theology is this. Whenever you're in trouble, whenever things go bad, you run to the temple. You go to the temple. And God will protect you if you get to that temple. That's what they did in 70 AD. They went to the temple to protect it, and they said, as long as we're at the temple, we'll be, we'll be secure from God. That's what they always have done through history is run to that temple and get to God because God said, go there and I'll help you. God says, strategy's different now in the tribulation. You get out of that town, you get away from that temple, and you run to the mountains. The whole thing is flipped, and don't you do what you normally have done. Run for your life by fleeing. And God says, when you do that, I will miraculously preserve you. You no longer have an evangelistic obligation to the world. Let that flying angel take care of that. Let the 144,000 take care of that. Let those two witnesses take care of that. You, you get out of town and get out of town as fast as you can. This event triggers the middle of the tribulation period. The abomination of desolation now triggers a key event for the last three and a half years on the earth of horrible birth pains. Just some of you who know the book of Revelation, the first six seals bring us up to the middle of tribulation the seventh seal is opened and it pours out the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments in the last half of the tribulation. rapid succession they come upon the earth just like that god says now you get out of town for that all right that's preparing for the tremendous reaction let me go to number three expect a sovereign protection expect a sovereign protection The Bible says in verse 20, And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is a Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. What God is saying by that statement is it's impossible to mislead the elect. God said, You do your part, get out of town, I will miraculously do my part, and I will preserve you. Now, thousands of tribulations and millions of tribulation saints will die, and thousands and thousands of Jewish people will die. But God is going to miraculously preserve some of them. And the reason He's going to preserve some of them is because He is going to bring them into the millennial kingdom alive. Because you can't have an earthly kingdom without living people. So God has determined that some will be preserved. Some will die and immediately be glorified after their death, but some will make it all the way through the tribulation and be preserved by God. And God says, that's what I want you to do. I want you to hide there until I come and get you. Now, they will come and they will say, hey, I know things are horrible on the earth. Go over there. There's a Christ. There's a Jesus. Go over there. There's a Jesus, and he'll save you. And what God is saying is, don't you believe them. Don't you believe them. Why? Because what they'll really do is they'll drive you right to the Antichrist. 
but you're going to be so scared. You're going to be so anxious. You're going to be so wondering, what should you do? Should you believe him? Should you not believe him? That you're going to be tempted because people, when they get under pressure like that, make bad decisions. And so God's telling him in the word, don't you believe them because you're going to feel desperate. Give me an explanation. Well, that's because Jesus is really over here. Go get him. Don't you go. That's what he's saying to the elect. Don't you go. If you stay where you are, hide in the mountains, don't give yourself up, don't worry, I will protect you. Because if you listen to those voices that say, I'm over here, I'm over here, I'm over here, they'll, read you, they'll lead you right to Satan's concentration camps. So some God has miraculously chosen to spare to bring into the kingdom. He uses key words there, the word elect and the chosen ones. That's special terminology in the Bible. The burden's on God to protect them. If you go to the mountains and hide, I will protect you there. You will be delivered spiritually and physically. And God will protect his own who he's chosen to. And these wonders and signs and these messiahs that will be going around, matter of fact, I wanted to mention this. In Muslim theology, they believe there's two Jesuses. Two Jesuses. And they will cry out and point them to the Mahdi. But these wonders and signs will not deceive the elect. Why? It's just like today. You truly know that you're one of his children when you are not deceived by foolish things. John 10:5. Sheep won't follow a stranger but will flee from a stranger because they don't know his voice. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Don't fear the false messiahs, he's telling them in the future. You know the truth, and you know the shepherd's voice. And how do I know the shepherd's voice? Because it's his word. You will take the word, and you will literally follow it with your life. That's how you know you're not fooled today. That's how you know you're not taking down a bad path today, is because you're following the word. And that's what you're going to have to do in the end times for these people. They're going to have to follow and when they say, here's a Christ, there's a Christ, they're all lies. They're all lies. Don't come out from your hiding and expose yourself to your own death. How will you know the true Christ in that last day? We won't get into it today, but he said in verse 24, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will go dark, the moon will go dark, the stars will fall, the heavens will shake, <laughs> and then you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. That's how you really know I'm coming, I'm coming, and it's me, okay? The sun's going to go black, the stars will go black, the heavens will shake, everyone will see him, it'll be no secret, and a secret, and he will blast across the sky. That's when you go. That's when you can come out of your hole, because that's when I'm really back. That's an amazing thing. They will read the Bible in that day, and they will know the time they are in. We are not in that time today. The rapture takes place first. Christ is coming before in the sky, and then this terror is unleashed. But he will collect the church in advance. I believe that with all my heart. Now the application. Two takeaways, and I'm going to close here. Two takeaways. And these are struggles in your life that parallel the struggles they'll have in their life in that day. They're going to have two struggles, and I believe you have two struggles today. Number one is the search for relief. The search for relief. There is something about living this life that if you have enough pain, enough disappointment, you look for some way to find relief outside of God. You look for some way to find some kind of relief for the pain you're going through in your life. They will struggle with it in the tribulation. We struggle with it now. 
we have this search for relief. The weight of life gets heavy on us and conflicts we have in relationship and we just, we just want to sometimes throw it all away. And the one thing you'll be offered is the pleasure of sin, the pleasure of lust, the pleasure of abuse, the pleasure of laziness. All these things get to us sometimes and the pleasures of the world pull us and we just want to say, I want relief. I want relief. And I'm telling you, you've got to fight that. You've got to fight it now. They'll have to fight it in the future. All right, number two, and I'm going to close. Watch out for the oppression of peer pressure. Be confident in the faith of the gospel. Be confident in the faith of the gospel. In the last days, the message of the gospel will become more and more offensive. People are going to get tired of you saying, this is the truth. They're going to get tired of you saying, that's not right. They're going to get tired of that. And you will be called to stand. I believe it more and more in my life. I just shared my faith on Friday with someone, and I, I could just sense that. And so I just want you to know that in the last days, the message of the gospel will be offensive, and there will be a pressure on you not to speak, just to keep your mouth shut, not say nothing. I know it will happen. I feel it sometimes myself, but you will be pressured not to speak the truth and take the word of God and say, here's what the word of God says. And you'll have pressure not to declare Christ. I just want to say to you, okay, be bold. Be bold. You're sitting in a culture that is trying to stifle you, just like they will try to stifle them in the tribulation. But in the tribulation, they will kill them. But you stand and you be bold for Christ in your life, your walk, with the truth. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Here's my call today for everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior in here. Be bold. Be bold. There are people in this church that have lost their jobs because of boldness. There are people in this church that have left because of their conviction about what their company was doing that they knew they could not agree with. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you that I understand the pressures that many of you are under. But be bold. Now I want to say something to you if you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm going to tell you why I got saved. I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. It scared me. That is the bad news of the gospel. And you've got to hear that just as much as the good news. There is a real hell. And I just didn't want to go there. And so I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for me. That's the good news. And he died in my place. He took my hell. And he said, if you'll believe me, if you'll take me as your Lord and Savior, I'll save you. And I just want to ask you, you may be here today and you would say, you know, I, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. I, I've not accepted the Lord as my Savior, but I want to make that decision right now. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I just want to ask, is there someone in this room who just lift up their hand right now and say, that's me, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I'm just looking around right now. Is there a hand raised? Just raise it up so I can see it. I don't see one. Oh, there's one. I see one right there. Is there another? Okay. There's two. I saw two. 
those two hands that went up, I just want to take a moment for you right now and just declare that to God. Make that statement to God right now at your seat. You can do it quietly. You don't have to say it out loud, but say, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to save myself. But you died on a cross for me. You were the substitute for my sin and you paid the price. You shed your blood to cover my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Now you two raised your hands if you prayed that prayer. We want to help you in your walk with God. We want to see you come to a close relationship where you sense him speaking to you in personal ways as he spoke to you for your need of salvation. It's a beautiful thing. Father, take this time now. Put your blessing on each one here that have heard the word of God. May they go away strengthened by it, encouraged by it. Guide their life through it. Leave it at your feet now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team is going to lead us in a song. If there is a need in your heart, something's on your heart you want to bring to the altar this morning, the altar's open for you for sure.